If anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My response, my reply would have run something like this. Look at the universe we live in. By far the greatest part of it consists of empty space, completely dark and unimaginably cold. The bodies which move in the space are so few and so small in comparison with the space itself that even if every one of them were known to be crowded as full as it could hold with perfectly happy creatures, it would still be difficult to believe that life and happiness are more than a byproduct to the power made, that made the universe. As it is, however, the scientists think that it is likely that very few of the suns of space, perhaps none of them except our own, have any planets. And in our own system, it is improbable that any planet except the Earth sustains life. The Earth herself exists without life for millions of years and may exist for millions more when life has left her. And what is it like while it lasts? It is so arranged that the forms of it can live only by preying upon one another. In the lower forms, this process entails only death, but in the higher, there appears a new quality called consciousness, which enables it to be attended with pain. The creatures cause pain by being born and live by inflicting pain, and in pain they mostly die. In the most complex of all the creatures, man, yet another quality appears, which we call reason, whereby he is enabled to foresee his own pain, which henceforth is preceded with acute mental suffering, and to foresee his own death while keenly desiring permanence. It also enables men by a hundred ingenious contrivances to inflict a great deal, pain, more, great deal more pain than they otherwise could have done on one another and on irrational creatures. This power they have exploited to the full. Their history is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror, with just sufficient happiness interposed to give them, while it lasts, an agonized apprehension of losing it, and when it is lost, the poignant misery of remembering. Every now and then, they improve their condition a little, and what we call a civilization appears, but all civilizations pass away. And even while they remain, inflict peculiar sufferings of their own, probably sufficient to outweigh what, uh, what alleviations they may have brought to the normal pains of man. That our own civilization has done so, no one will dispute, that it will pass away like all its predecessors is surely probable. Even if it should not, what then? The race is doomed. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed. For the universe, they tell us, is running down and will sometime be a uniform infinity of homogeneous matter at a low temperature. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. Such was the vantage point of someone that none of us in this audience would probably consider a dunce. The quotation that I just read to you is someone that I suspect most in this room would admire, for both their deep spiritual insights as well as literary genius. The question before us this morning is what on earth we are to think against such difficult questions. Perhaps some of the most difficult and ancient questions to have crossed the mind of men and one that God himself encountered when he walked on this dusty earth. Please turn to the book of John chapter 9 beginning with verse 1 and I'll read a translation here from the ESV. That's John 9, beginning with verse 1. As he passed by, 
he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let us pray. Lord, I confess my severe lack of understanding of almost the entirety of the subject material. I confess that I have difficulty with this subject above almost every other question that I can think to ask you. And our severe lack of understanding that we enter into your presence with this morning, we ask humbly that you will give us a measure of wisdom to wrestle appropriately with these ideas. We thank you for the very opportunity to do so here in the United States of America in 2018 in an era of almost unmitigated freedom that we can discuss these ideas. Guide our hearts and minds this morning. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If God were good, he would, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. That is our question this morning. And as I've already stated, I confess that I'm unable to find any other subject that's so difficult in all of Christianity. I'm not sure why I can readily accept that there are three beings, but one being who calls himself God, who can be known that he existed for eternity past, who is outside all space and time, who allowed himself to exist first as a single cell, then a larger group of cells, who was then born of a woman, then placed in a dirty wooden box in a cave approximately 2,000 years ago, who walked across water and didn't sink, who walked through walls, healed someone's servant who was across town that he had presumably never met, who restored function to a cripple's hand, who told someone to go fishing and get some cash to pay taxes from the fish's mouth. And wow, wouldn't I like to be able to do that. But the existential problem of human suffering is one that gives me tremendous difficulty. As a caveat, this topic is preposterously well beyond me. Perhaps um, people who, have, who are considered to be some of the wisest that have ever lived have written entire books on the subject. To even broach the topic and attempt to give it a whiff of intellectual honesty is either the height of stupidity on my part or complete ignorance. However, having already opened my mouth and removed all doubt, as the saying goes, I do think that it's a subject that we as a church should be ready at least to talk about. I suspect that most of us are, are fairly ready to give a nice churchy answer to the question or the problem. We could probably quote five scriptures right off the top of our heads for someone that his ways are higher than our ways, or cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you which are true things, by the way. If I may, however, I think it might be worth our time to be able to seriously engage this question with the world that's hurting around us. In order to even begin to answer the question of the existential problem of human suffering, it's worthwhile to consider the question of what's our worldview. Most of us might kind of be taken aback by that and think that we've got everything pretty well hammered down already. Pause for a moment and think back to the scripture that we read at the beginning. 
about um, the man blind at the pool of Siloam. I'll answer for myself unhonestly that my very first reaction to the man and the situation is probably precisely the same as his disciples who sinned. I personally and suspect that many who have encountered this idea, whether they're cognizant or not, are prone to sort of a blueprint worldview when they consider God. I'm prone to that myself. And that blueprint worldview suggests that every, every part, everything is part of one specific divine meticulous plan. Every action, blade of grass, spoken word is specifically ordained and directed by God. Before you hang me for heresy, I'm not disagreeing entirely with all these concepts. But let me propose another way of thinking about God and how he interacts with the natural world. It's possible that God and his relationship to the world is one of warfare, rather than all of human existence being held to a specific and meticulously laid out blueprint. God has set a natural order that he both acts within and acts in a constant state of warfare with the spiritual forces that oppose his will. Considering this question, I was pretty heavily influenced by C.S. Lewis's work on the subject, which is why it's the title of the sermon this morning, as well as a book by um, a guy named Greg Boyd entitled, Is God to Blame? And you could probably get a better read on this subject by skipping the sermon and just going and reading both of those books. However, that question of worldview is one that Greg Boyd lays out pretty well in his book. How do we see God? And what is our worldview in relationship to this view of God? I can personally really see only three applicable quote-unquote worldviews, if you will. The blueprint worldview, which I mentioned before. The blind watchmaker, which is a favorite of Richard Dawkins, amongst others. And the warfare worldview, which I mentioned as well. So I think it would be a good idea to go through each of those. The blueprint worldview suggests that God is the immutable, unchanged changer outside space and time. Everything happens for a purpose. God decided it was better for event X to occur than for it not to occur. Sort of the strong view of this uh, worldview here is that all events, including human decisions, unfold precisely as God wills them. God ordains and specifically orders all that comes to pass. The weak version of the blueprint worldview is that humans, at least, but perhaps angelic beings as well, have the ability to make choices that God does not directly cause or ordain. This draws in the notion of free will in as much as they are able to make decisions of some types at minimum. Before the creation of the world, within this weak blueprint idea, God decided to either allow or prevent every decision on the basis of whether or not it contributed to the greater good. All events in human history occur at the very least because God chose not to prevent them. And there are a tremendous number of scriptures that have been used for a long time, probably since St. Augustine, that back up at least part of this notion, including that God is all-powerful as well as perfectly good, and these are without dispute. You can see... 1 Chronicles 29, Jeremiah 32, Matthew 19, Revelation 1, God is all good, Deuteronomy 32, Habakkuk 1.13, and 1 John 1.5. Now, I'm going off the beaten path here if you haven't figured that out so far. 
But the problem with this strict worldview is that whatever happens in history, at the very least, it contributes to the overall good that God wills. Given the travails of the 20th century, I think, you can, and I think you can immediately see how that would be problematic for some. If God, being the unmoved mover or unchanged changer, has either ordained all events to occur just so, or else preconditioned the state of the universe in such a way that any action that were to be taken would only be an action that contributed to the greater good, then it draws into serious question of whether or not God has created or allowed a system in which any human being at any time is able to be thought of as a morally sufficient agent, a topic we'll, which we'll get into eventually here. Okay, so that was a blueprint model. We have two more. The others are easier. The silent watchmaker. This is the easiest to understand because it's self-explanatory. Behind on my slides. Essentially, the silent watchmaker model of understanding how God created and interacts with the world posits that God created the entire thing to run, sort of wound it up, put it in the corner, and set it loose. This view is championed by British biologist Richard Dawkins, amongst others, although he used slightly different language to describe essentially the same framework. He sort of in a derogatory fashion calls it the blind watchmaker model, which I disagree with for obvious reasons. And this viewpoint has serious problems when considering the biblical text anyway, particularly that Jesus became human, dwelt among us, interacted with us in a temporal state, and on a particular historical stage, not to mention the fact of the promise and presence of the Holy Spirit to the believer. So I think we can dispense with that one pretty, pretty quickly. And another possibility here is the, world, uh, the warfare worldview. When we actually consider how our worldview in terms of how God interacts with the world, it seems appropriate to begin the discussion with the person of Jesus Christ. The very fact that God became man implies that God is at work within a specific time and temporal space, which destroys the watchmaker model we just discussed. And Greg Boyd draws out that very language utilized by the scriptural writers as a one be of a war between good and evil. The narrative of Christ's death and resurrection is painted as a struggle with and a triumph over sin, death, and the devil. This flies in direct opposition to the blueprint model in that our warfare model gives the idea that Christ had to come into the world, had to suffer, and had to die on the cross precisely because things were not as they should be. In order for this... Hi, Nora. That was, she calls me do-da, so if you heard that one. We can probably scrub that bit from the recording. But. So our warfare model flies in direct opposition to the blueprint model for reasons I've just stated. In order, in order for this to have any meaning whatsoever and for us to not logically see God as some masochistic deity whose great desire was to create something capable of destruction, which could only then be rescued by his own devastatingly horrific execution at the hands of his creatures, we may have to consider that God's will can be fought against by fallen angels or creatures capable of rejecting him. 
in order to reconcile to himself those who had rejected his will, God made a decision, I personally believe it was a decision, to go through the utmost extreme of measures and allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute for our sins. God allowed a world, for a world to exist in which his will was not always being carried out, in which agents are capable of actually striving against the will of God. Suffering does not exist simply in order to fulfill the part of the play upon the grand stage of life, if we consider it this way. And in reference to that idea, we can simply look to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, in which Christ discusses the atrocities committed by Pontius Pilate in murdering a group of uh, Galileans. Christ asked them, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or consider the blind man at the Pool of Siloam that we referenced earlier, when Christ denied that it was because of some sinful event that this man was born blind, but referenced light fighting against the darkness. In the original Greek, the phrase that initially appears problematic from the story, this man was born blind in order that the works of God may be revealed, may also be translated from the original Greek, he was born blind, let the works of God be revealed in him. Or again, consider several chapters later in the book. Christ healed a woman with a physical deformity who couldn't stand up straight. Christ didn't indicate that God made her suffer in order that he could bring glory to himself. Instead, Jesus railed against the suffering of this woman, stating that this daughter of Abraham was bound by the devil for 18 years. I think a proper reading of how God interacts with suffering is just as we see it in the person of, and Godhead of Jesus Christ. Instead of being the cause of our suffering, either directly or indirectly, we have evidence for the contrary in Jesus' life and ministry. We may read the text from Daniel chapter 4 and say with conviction, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can accuse God of being the author of our suffering and that he'd either did not act to alleviate it or in that he directly caused it in order to demonstrate his eventual power over it. I think we would be hard-pressed to find that view exemplified in the, per in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that was just the beginning. If we look to the natural created order, having, after we've just dealt with the question of how, how are we to view God how does he interact with us? What is God's nature and relationship with the problem of pain, the, the concept of human suffering? We're left with a question still. If God were truly good, why would he either directly create or allow a world to develop within which evil itself exists? And the root of this problem, in, in my opinion, lies in whether or not human beings are capable of free will at all or not. Are human beings capable of free will at all? <clears throat> Could God have possibly created a world in which humans, human beings were capable of free will and evil or suffering did not exist? C.S. Lewis goes to some lengths to suggest that the divine omnipotence could not have created a world in which there existed free souls without providing those free souls a neutral and independent platform to interact in. So we're going we're gonna to extrapolate this here for a moment. 
Think of this as a neutral playing field in which the laws of nature react to all parties in all places based on the same set of rules. Human beings, in order to be both self-conscious or self-aware and have intrinsic freedom, must in essence have a space and time within which to recognize other beings as separate from themselves. And we do exactly as much when we meet someone else for coffee and have a conversation. There exists a neutral platform which with, within which the world works, the laws of physics. And the physicists among us are rubbing their hands together gleefully at this point. If, therefore, there's a neutral created order that obeys relatively consistent natural laws, there will automatically be certain conditions within which any party can manipulate the environment in order to cause pain and suffering. If it's cold outside and you light a fire in order to keep us warm, you may immediately see that there's a location at which I can experience a gentle warming sensation and also a location at which I could stand near the fire that would cause third-degree burns. Or you can decide to fashion trees into planks that could either be used to build a house and provide shelter, or you can bash me over the head with it. This type of environment is necessary in order for God to have created beings that are capable of free will. And you can immediately see that this allows some element of human suffering. If a natural world is a neutral playing field within which we can both understand and become aware of any other created being, then that natural environment can be utilized by party A to the detriment of party B, at best by accident, and at worst on purpose. Therefore, there does exist a morally sufficient reason for God to have created the world in which evil was allowed to exist in order to also provide a platform within which its created beings are capable of. To put this in, a, in another way, by uh, Dr. Alvin Plantiga's free will defense, God's creation of, of persons with morally significant free will is something of tremendous value. God could not eliminate much of the evil and suffering in this world without thereby eliminating the greater good of having created persons with free will with whom he could have relationships and who are able to love one another and do good deeds. Therefore, God creates persons with morally significant free will. God does not causally determine people in every situation to choose what is right and to avoid what is wrong. And there is evil and suffering in the world. Okay, so now we're, we're through two parts here. We've established that our worldview and our conception of God, who God is and how he acts within the natural created order, has a massive impact on how we view the problem of pain. And we've also seen that there is a morally sufficient reason that God created a world in which suffering exists. Okay, now we're left with the actual topic itself, that of human suffering. I don't want to, nor do I think it's necessary to spend an inordinate amount of time on this particular portion of the topic but it's worthwhile for us to understand and differentiate between different types of pain. Anyone with children or anyone who can remember how preposterously rebellious they were as children can attest to the fact that some types of pain are not evil in and of themselves. 
If we go back to our previous example, a fire may be both warm and inviting, or else capable of inflicting the most horrific injuries, depending on our proximity to it. Some types of discomfort are actually beneficial to us in terms of our human development. After sitting with your back to a warm fire for too long, you might experience a sensation that causes you to stand up and just move a bit further away. And that type of pain actually helps us along our developmental processes, reminding the child not to touch the hot stove or reminding the adolescent that spending time with those that they know to be frequently afoul of the law is probably not the best course of action to produce long-term happiness. Pain or suffering that occurs as a direct result of our choices, while redeemable by God, as the scripture tells us, may not be directly placed at the feet of God. The hippie who moves to California to survive off only the sustenance of the universe may not blame God for his being malnourished. That's the result of his own personal decisions. The second, the second type of, e of suffering that exists may be more directly called evil, in that human beings are capable of inflicting absolutely abhorrent and wanton suffering upon their fellow man. If the 20th century taught us anything about humanity, it's precisely that man, all man, is capable of unspeakable horrors. For proof of this, I would simply refer you to a reading of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, or to study Nazi Germany's final solution, if you've got the stomach for it. Before you express any outrage that any of us present would be capable of such a thing, I can refer you to the Stanford Prison Experiment, in which 12 or ordinary graduate students slipped shockingly easily into the role of psychological torturers of their fellow students in only a matter of days. And the third type of suffering that exists is the one that we see quickly in the scriptures and come across on a daily basis, and which is perhaps the hardest to answer for me anyway. This is the uncaused, unreasoned suffering, particularly of children. I mentioned several times before, but that of a man born blind, a woman with a physical deformity that would not allow her to stand up straight, various types of diseases present since birth, etc., I don't need to spend any more time on that subject other than to recognize that this raises tremendous and serious spiritual questions and problems for people, both who have had long and loving relationships with their creator and for those who disavow that God himself exists. I hope thus far we've been able to see that this is a tremendously serious topic. When we delve into the problem sufficiently enough, we can immediately see that Telling someone who was in a concentration camp or was forcibly made to be a child soldier that God surely is love, and we know this because we read it, may fall on deaf ears. I think our best course of action then, and we've alluded to this already, is to simply look at Jesus. If we take on a, as our initial premise that Jesus is in fact God, Everything that we need to learn about the problem of pain and suffering and God's reaction to it should be taken from the life of Christ. We've already discussed several examples of this while hashing out the blueprint model for a worldview. And in every situation that I found in the Gospels, the person of Jesus Christ is seen acting in direct opposition to human suffering, both to heal and bring peace 
affirming those who are in the very travail of their souls, and comforting those who have been afflicted with unimaginable betrayals and loneliness. You can start at the beginning of Matthew with Christ telling his audience that blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, and move straight to his cleansing of the leper, healing of a centurion's servant that was far across town, healing the paralytic, and so on. We see absolutely nothing of a vengeful God who desires that his creatures suffer in order to demonstrate how immensely powerful he is by alleviating that suffering. Such a conception of God would transform him into some type of maniacal narcissistic egomaniac, incinerating ants by the light of a magnifying glass purely for the, purely for the pleasure of it, then thinking himself honorable and just when he removes the magnifying glass again. No, we don't see that model at all. Instead, we see Jesus actually entering into our suffering, taking on the cloth of humanity, and suffering as we do, yet without sin. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, undergoing absolutely tremendous emotional anguish, shaken to the very core of his soul, with the decision on the edge of a knife to either rescue his pitiable and magnificent creatures or to avoid the cross entirely and save himself from an amount of existential pain that we cannot imagine. You can choose to believe what you will about Matthew 26, but I believe that this was an actual choice of Jesus's. The only thing that could possibly have separated any chance for reconciliation with God was that Jesus was horrified at the amount of suffering that he would have to endure in order to redeem a people who rebel against him by their very nature. Such a God is not to be discarded as apathetic or uncaring or not understanding, or of cruelty, or of vindictiveness, or malice. Such a God is one that, in demonstrating how impossibly deep he loves us, despised the shame and the horror of taking on the horrendous evil and sin of mankind, and went to the cross in our stead. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, The Man Who Was Thursday, provided one of the most beautiful answers that I can think of to this question. Now, it's allegorical, so I'll have to set the stage a little bit. The scene we find at the end of the book, in which uh, the characters find themselves in a type of throne room, and there's seven great beings in this throne room, represented as the days of the week. That'll, that'll be their names there. And two individuals with quite different questions and accusations for Sunday. We begin with the devil's accusation. You, he cried, you never hated because you never lived. I do not curse you for being cruel. I do not curse you, though I might, for being kind. I curse you for being safe. You sit on your chairs of stone and have never come down from them. You are the seven angels of heaven, and you have had no troubles. Oh, I could forgive you everything, you that rule all mankind, if I could feel for once that you had suffered for one hour, a real agony such as I. Syme, who's the innocent, sprang to his feet, shaking from head to foot. I see everything, he cried, everything that there is. Why does each thing on earth war against each other thing? Why does each small thing in the world have to fight against the world itself? Why does a fly have to fight the whole universe? 
Why does a dandelion have to fight the whole universe for the same reason that I had to be alone in the dreadful council of days, so that each thing that obeys law may have the glory and isolation of the anarchist, so that each man fighting for order may be as brave and as good a man as the dynamiter, so that the real lie of Satan may be flung back in the face of this blasphemer, so that by tears and torture we may earn the right to say to this man, you lie. No agonies can be too great to buy the right to say to this accuser, we also have suffered. It's not true that we have never been broken. We have been broken upon the wheel. It is not that we have never descended from these thrones. We have descended into hell. We were complaining of unforgettable miseries even at the very moment when this man entered insolently to accuse us of happiness. I repel the slander. We have not been happy. I can answer for every one of the great guards of law whom he has accused, at least. He turned his eyes so as to see suddenly the great face of Sunday, which wore a strange smile. Have you, he cried in a dreadful voice, have you ever, ever suffered? As he gazed, the great face grew to an awful size, grew larger than the colossal mask of Memnon, which had made him scream as a child. It grew larger and larger, filling the whole, whole sky, then everything went black. Only in the blackness, before it entirely destroyed his brain, he seemed to hear a distant voice saying a commonplace text that he had heard somewhere. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Lord, we thank you for this brief time to consider this immensely difficult topic. We thank you that as an answer to all of these things you provided yourself, that everything we see from your life on this earth is one that you came to alleviate suffering, that it is not on you the cause of all of our suffering, that we're not just playthings of the divine. And Lord, we ask for your help in both understanding and dealing with this topic as we engage the world around us. There are many people around us, Lord, and many people in this room who have suffered. We ask for your help and look to you for our comfort. We ask that we be able to engage these people with, with compassion that have the, these questions. That instead of pointing them to anything else that we would be able to point them to you and that you would be able to provide the salve for those wounds that have long since been in place, Lord. We thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen.